Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Over the past 20 years, the number of companies listed on the US stock market has almost halved. The world's largest, most liquid public equity market would appear to have lost its shine. Institutional investors have been piling into private markets instead, in particular venture capital, private equity and private debt. The Financial Times reported last week that the size of the private capital industry has now reached $7.4 trillion, 15 times the size it was in 2000. The industry is expected to reach $13 trillion in the next four years. For the Elon Musk fans out there, $7.4 trillion is roughly around the value of a trillion hamsters. On top of this, a boom in share buybacks, where companies purchase their own stock as an alternative to paying dividends, has further reduced the number of shares outstanding from the remaining public companies. Historically low interest rates have compounded the trend, tempting companies to raise cheap debt rather than to sell equity. The way things used to work was that companies followed a path of starting out small, funded by the founder's own capital. As the company grew, it might raise debt financing or take a bank loan. And once they'd proved themselves but still needed additional capital to grow, companies would go public via an IPO. The capital raised in an IPO gave the firm permanent capital. Once a company is exchange listed, investors can buy and sell the stock as they see fit and shareholders receive any distributions or dividends paid out by the company. If the company needs more equity capital at some point in the future, being exchange listed, they can simply issue additional shares in what's known as a secondary or follow-on stock offering. Exchange-traded companies allow retail investors to own a piece of fast-growing businesses and to share in a nation's economic growth. Even if you don't have your own brokerage account where you invest your savings, there's a good chance that you have a retirement account that's invested in the stock market. This type of investment should grow your savings faster than other types of investment like bonds or real estate. This model of how companies raise capital to grow has been disrupted over the last 20 years, where we've seen some of the fastest growing tech companies reaching multi-billion dollar valuations while remaining privately owned. The financial press refer to these billion dollar plus valued private companies as unicorns. In the past, it would have been close to impossible for a company to grow this large while still remaining private, as back then private equity firms were too small to fund operations on such large scales. Tech unicorns like Palantir, which was founded in 2004, spent 16 years in the private equity Enchanted Forest before going public in 2020 with a $16.5 billion valuation. Long waits like this can frustrate venture capital investors, who typically look to exit investments in under 10 years and who view high-profile IPOs as reputation-building events. Employees at these firms who hold stock options that are nearing their maturity dates have also pushed some companies to go public, 
such as Airbnb, which went public in December 2020 after 12 years in the enchanted forest. So what happened in markets to change the way that companies raise capital? Well, overall, a number of government actions dating back to the mid-1990s made it easier for startups and private backers to raise capital. By reducing the application of anti-fraud rules governing share sales and increasing the number of investors allowed in private market funds. A study published by the NBER found that these changes played a significant role in changing the going public versus staying private trade-off. One of the best papers on this topic was written by Stephen Davidoff-Solomon at the University of California, Berkeley and Paul Rose. I'll put a link to their paper in the description. Solomon and Rose put forth several theories explaining the disappearance of small company IPOs. The most prominent one relates to increased federal regulation, in particular the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. The cost of going public has always been significant, but the new regulations in 2002 caused these costs to skyrocket. Compliance required hiring additional personnel, outside consultants, and required numerous systems improvements within firms. On top of this, the regulations imposed significant new responsibilities on directors and officers, increasing their exposure to personal, civil, and criminal liability, making it more costly for public companies to recruit and insure their directors and officers. The market structure theory builds on the regulatory explanation, adding that shifts in market structure set up economic barriers to small company IPOs. Finally, there's the argument that IPOs have disappeared due to shifting economic conditions, where there are simply new and better sources of capital than an exchange listing provides. The idea being that it's more attractive for founders and managers to remain private provide limited transparency to investors, and crucially for technology firms, to provide limited transparency to competitors. The regulatory explanation achieved prominence a decade ago, which then led to the Jobs Act of 2012, which was supposed to unwind regulation and lessen its burdens on growing companies. The Jobs Act was primarily a response to the regulatory theory, but it also took aim at some market structure issues by loosening restrictions on research analysts. Other features of the Jobs Act were that it expanded the number of private shareholders that companies are permitted before being forced to release public financial reports. This, of course, allowed private companies to keep their finances hidden for longer and prevented them from running into shareholder limits, like Facebook did before going public in 2011. The Jobs Act overall had no effect on encouraging new IPOs. It's worth noting that mutual fund managers are also permitted to include small holdings of private companies in their public equity mutual funds. Across all venture capital-backed IPOs in 2016, 40% had raised money from mutual funds prior to going public. These private company investments can be used to bump up reported returns and reduce reported volatility for mutual fund managers. This is because there are no observable market prices for these investments. They get marked to a model valuation. This is not necessarily good for mutual fund investors. 
Neil Woodford, a UK-based fund manager, was forced to close his fund back in 2019 after big losses in illiquid private investments, which included an investment in a company that claimed to violate the laws of thermodynamics by making clean energy through cold fusion. If there's one piece of investment advice that I can give, it's that investments in businesses that violate the fundamental laws of physics mostly don't work out. So what exactly are private equity firms? They are, as their name suggests, private, meaning that they're owned and invested in by their founders, managers, or a limited group of large investors, and they're not available to the general public to invest in. These firms buy or invest in companies that they decide have growth potential or have steady cash flows that can be leveraged. They then try to repackage them, speed up their growth, and theoretically make them work better. Then they eventually sell them on to another firm, take them public, or find some other way to offload them. Generally, an ordinary investor isn't able to put money directly into a private equity fund. These funds are available to institutional investors, meaning pension funds, sovereign governments and endowments, or accredited investors who meet a set of criteria that allow them to make riskier investments, basically rich people who can afford to lose their investment and don't need or want the protection of securities regulators. So are these private investments providing better returns than investments in publicly listed companies? Well, according to Bain and Company, over the last 30 years, private investments have significantly outperformed the S&P 500 by around 5% per year. But they point out that over the last 10 years, returns have converged, where private investments have similar, if slightly lower, returns to public market investments. This convergence should probably be expected. As the private investment industry has grown, there's more competition to invest in every available deal. So the deals today are more picked over than ever before. In addition, a lot of the legal and tax efficiencies historically exploited by private equity firms have disappeared. The Financial Times reports that right now the private capital industry has almost $2.5 trillion committed to funds by investors that has yet to be deployed. This amount of money sitting on the sidelines highlights how ferocious the competition is right now for attractive deals and might lead you to question what returns might look like going forward. Not only does private equity appear to have outperformed historically, it also seems to have had much lower volatility than an investment in the S&P 500. This obviously has an appeal for institutional investors who might face investor redemptions during market drawdowns. Unfortunately, this low volatility is more of an illusion than reality. Private equity portfolio companies are usually valued on a quarterly basis, so there's no daily time series. In addition, the valuations are usually conducted by external appraisers using business plans from the private equity firms. If private equity firms valued their portfolio companies on a daily basis using public market multiples, volatility would be much higher and more reminiscent of the S&P 500. It might surprise you that the average private equity fund, according to Cambridge Associates, claimed to be up 11% back in 2008, when many of their portfolio companies were at the brink of collapse and the stock market was down 38%. 
I'll allow you to decide for yourself if they had actually picked the best companies to invest in, or if they simply refused to write down the value of their illiquid investments. Let's think a bit about what you get when you invest in one of these funds. An investor in a US-focused private equity fund will get exposure to mainly US-based companies, just like they would by investing in a stock market index. Private equity funds have no short positions, no unusual investments like cryptocurrencies, and they don't trade in and out of investments the way hedge funds do. There's no reason to expect any unusual diversification opportunities. Investing in private equity is basically a long-only bet on a leveraged portfolio of companies with high fees of 2% of assets under management and 20% of the upside above a hurdle rate being taken out. Nicholas Rabner at Factor Research constructed a portfolio in 2018 of small cap, low valuation and levered stocks, the type of company these firms typically invest in. He found that this portfolio of public equities that anyone can invest in outperformed the US private equity index over the last 30 years, while providing daily liquidity, requiring minimal initial due diligence, and not requiring any ongoing management or monitoring. I'll put a link to his paper in the description. This, of course, is great news for retail investors, as it means that you don't have to be an accredited investor to access this type of return stream. Unfortunately for you, though, you won't get to pretend to be up when the market is down, as all of the stocks that you have invested in are priced daily in the market. The upside of that, though, is that you will be able to sell your holdings whenever you want to. Now that companies are able to raise capital relatively easily in private markets, how has it changed the world of investing? Well, in recent years, we've seen a shift in the type of corporate governance typically seen in public equity markets. Listing rules often enforced market norms regarding shareholder voting rights and the ability of shareholders to control management. Many of the privately held, as well as the more recently IPO technology companies in recent years, have structured their equity offerings such that company founders can't be outvoted or ousted by common shareholders. A good example of this is the way that Facebook went public with a multiple share class structure. The founder shares had 10 times the voting rights of the shares that were offered to the general public. Investors generally agree that multiple share class structures are not a good corporate governance practice. But at the time of the IPO, Facebook was considered to be such an exceptional asset that they got away with imposing an unfair structure upon their public shareholders. Five years later, when Snap, who bizarrely claimed to be reinventing the camera at the time, went public, they issued non-voting shares to public shareholders, giving these shareholders no rights to vote on management compensation, anti-takeover policies, or even the composition of the board of directors who supposedly represented them. Public shareholders essentially had no control whatsoever of the company's management. The founders and early venture capital investors sold ownership in the company while maintaining full control. Typically, you'd expect investors to avoid investing in companies like this or to demand a discount for non-voting shares. 
but it doesn't appear to have happened in these cases. Shortly after the SNAP IPO, the FTSE Russell Index Managers and S&P Dow Jones announced that companies that offer virtually non-existent voting rights to public shareholders would not be eligible for index membership, effectively drawing the first line in the sand on poor corporate governance proposals for new tech IPOs. It's an interesting idea that today, because companies, in particular tech companies, go public so late in their life cycles, an IPO is no longer a means of raising capital for a new startup. It's instead an exit for venture capital investors and a liquidity event for company founders. This is part of the reason that the New York Stock Exchange is pitching the idea of direct listings as an alternative to the IPO process. It might be that certain investors like private investments because they are illiquid. They never get marked down in market dips and you're unable to panic in sell-offs and dump your position at the market low. Investors in public equities who are prone to panicking in market dips could possibly take away the lesson that making a well-researched investment and sticking to your investing plan throughout a market cycle might deliver superior returns in the long run. If you want to learn more about how private equity works, here's a link to a one-hour class that I posted on YouTube about a year ago that covers the topic in greater detail. Like, subscribe, and see you guys later. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.